Are you aware of the following names? People like Lewis Morris, John Hart, William Hooper, Richard Stockton. I'll add a few more names to that that will probably put this into perspective for you. Samuel Adams, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Francis Lightfoot Lee, Richard Henry Lee. Does that help? Those are many names among 56 who shared these words. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separate separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are empowered by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a document, the preamble to a document that was written in 1776. Fifty-six men signed that document to which they committed their lives, their fortunes, all that they are to what that document represented. And that document is the Declaration of Independence. This week we celebrate the 4th of July, the day in which this document was signed. I would also add this. Of the 56 men that signed that document, it is reliably reported that 52 of them were men of faith. Men of faith. Men who had trusted in God. I don't know whether that is true or not. We'll find out when we get to glory. But this morning, I have got a message for you that I'd like to share. It's from the book of Philemon. And I call this the War for Independence. The War for Independence. Most of you are aware, because I've shared it with you before, that I bleed red, white, and blue. I am as patriotic as they come. I am a historical nut. Add, make sure you include the word historical later. I love history. I love what that represents for us as a nation. And while I understand the independence, I understand the philosophy, I understand what their de devotion was, I also recognize that as a, as a human being that I am very much dependent on who my God is. Very much dependent. I'm dependent on him because he has seen fit to, to allow me to be born in a country as great as ours. Yes, we have our warts and our wrinkles, and yes, we have our divisions, and we have our issues. But we are a nation that no one can deny has been blessed of God in many ways. The book of Philemon represents for us 
the epitome of what it means to be dependent. And while I call it the war for independence, I want you to understand that there is indeed a war that has been a part of humanity ever since Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has been at war with God because of the fall, because of sin. And that war has been, I was going to say decades, that's not correct, millennia in the making. If you're here today and you are a child of God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because there came a time, there came a place in which you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And at that moment in time, you experienced peace with God and you began to understand what it means to have the peace of God. The story we're going to look at here today is the story of a slave. A slave who has run away from his master, Philemon. And the wonderful destiny that Onesimus faced. It's interesting that whenever we run away from God, or at least we think we're running away from God, we're actually running toward him. I think of Jonah running from God. Where are you going to run and get away from God? I mean, even when the whale swallowed him. You go back and you read Jonah, you're going to find there that Jonah's testimony is that as I descended into the depths of the sea, you were there. Where are you going to run? That God can't touch your life. That God can't make a difference. Or God can't find you. No place. No place. So let's get back to Onesimus here. Let's take a look at this individual. I want you to remember three things about him. Number one, you're going to remember the fact that he was a compatriot. A compatriot. In keeping with our patriotic days, right? A compatriot. In uh, verses 1 through 7, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. To the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Speaking of refreshment, one moment. Mm -mm -mm. I'll come back to that in just a second. First of all, let's take a quick look at the, the geographical setting of what's going on here. We believe that what's transpiring here is that uh, uh, Philemon is at Colossae. He's a part of the church that is there. And if you've been a part of my Sunday school class, you're aware of the fact that Colossae is a church that was established probably by Epaphras, Epaphras, uh, who had been to Ephesus and heard Paul preach, had been converted, had trusted Christ, had gone home and shared his faith. Others have come to know Christ as a result. Church was, a church was established, maybe more than one. These churches were meeting in homes. It, it's much like a, a mission church that have, having been established, they would meet in a storefront or they'd meet in a home. Uh, in our current day, 
In this day, they often met in the homes of people, individuals. And Philemon's home was one of the places in which this church met. Okay, so you've got a little bit of the context of what's going on here and why it is that Paul shares what he does in terms of the practice of what was happening there in Colossae. In verses 1 through 3, you see a spirit of teamwork taking place as Paul mentions a number of individuals that were part of the work, that were a part of the faith, that were part of the ministry that was transpiring there as co-laborers for Christ. In verses 4 through 7, you see an introduction of the man Philemon. And we get to see the man, the individual. And sometimes we lose this. Sometimes we, as we read the scriptures, we forget the fact that these were really flesh and blood people. This is not a fictional book. These are real people that existed in time and space. Who breathed, who ate, who slept just like you and I do. Who suffered with the heat and sweat just like we do. These are human beings, Philemon among them. And we learn a few things about Philemon in this particular passage of Scripture. We find that he's a man of faith. In fact, if you go down to verse number 19 in this book, you're going to discover that Philemon uh, is a product, if you will, of Paul's ministry, and Paul lays claim to that. So he's a man of faith. He is a, he's a brother in Christ. You know, I was thinking as I was standing front, down front here serving communion this morning, and, and I was thinking about my brothers who were sitting in that front row there. I was thinking about the fact that these are my brothers in Christ, after having mentioned Acadia becoming my sister in Christ this week. What a joy that is. We are a family. I mean, sometimes we can be ornery, just like brothers and sisters can, but we're a family. You know, no matter how ornery I might get, I'm still the brother of my two sisters. They can't get away from that fact. It's a reality. And as a child of God today, you are my brother and sister in Christ. No matter what you do, I'm stuck with you. Amen. Well, this Philemon, he's being identified as a brother in Christ. Now, don't miss that, because that's a part of the argument, a part of the, of, the, uh, of the case that Paul is going to make here as he shares this letter with Philemon and with the church, I might add, that was meeting there in his home. He's also a man of love, as you noticed in the text in verse number 5. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, you understand that this is something that cannot be faked. You might be able to put on a front for a short period of time, but the reality is, with time, you, di- you find out what is real and what is not. And after a period of time, you know. I think of the Thessalonians. Their testimony of love was known abroad as a church. Philemon, your testimony is one of faith and one of love for the Lord and for the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the testimony that you have. That's the testimony I'm hearing. That's the testimony that we get to read this morning. Now the question then becomes, obviously for us, is what kind of a testimony do we have as a congregation, as an individual? 
Do we have a testimony of being a gracious, merciful people? Do we have a testimony of being a loving kind of a people? Do we have a testimony for being the people of God? People of faith. When I, talk, when I think of myself, what kind of a testimony do I have? Paul shared this morning, shaking hands. Well, I hope that's not all everybody remembers. I hope. What kind of a testimony do we have individually? What do people think when they, think, when they hear your name or they think about you? I'm thankful this morning, was, as, I, as I was standing there, I was thinking of my brothers, each of them, Barrett and Kirk and... Dave and Ralph. I saw Paul coming down. I thought he was coming too, but then he took a detour. Decided to sit with his wife instead. Which is a good thing, by the way. What kind of a testimony do we have? Philemon, you have one of love for the Lord and for the saints and a testimony of faith. Verse number 6. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. There was a witness. There is a witness in Philemon. The testimony of his faith. The evidence of that is the exhibition of those good things. What good things? Well, every good and perfect gift comes from him, from above. We have the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, that Galatians talks about, we have a number of things that are of evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit and of the maturing process that happens as a child of God grows in that relationship. It's the fruit. What do you see? What is being shared? What are others tasting? Is it the bitter fruit or is it the sweet fruit? Do you know that the Cherry Festival is going on right now in Traverse City? This is not a time to go to Traverse City. Do not go to Traverse City during this period of time. If you're going to go there, go at 3 in the morning. Serious. Because it is nuts if you have to go to Traverse City during this week. Where was I going with that? Oh, yes. Cherry Festival. My wife bought a bag of sweet cherries. Oh, are those delicious. You know... God, I don't know why God put the pit in there, but, you know, you have to d- dispose of the pit and that little stem. But the cherries, oh my goodness, sweet, sweet cherries. But every now and again, you know, there's one that's not quite up to snuff. And you know it. So my question then becomes of me, when people partake of the fruit of my spiritual maturity, are they getting something that is sweet or are they getting something that's bitter? Philemon, he has a testimony of love for the Lord, for the saints. He has a testimony of faith, and there is evidence of his faith. In other words, this is a man who's maturing and growing in his relationship with Christ, and the evidence is there. It's observable, it's measurable. The result is in verse number 7. For we have great joy and comfort or consolation in in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. Refreshed. I love that word. Speaking of which. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Would you like some? Now, I'm illustrating a point here. This word refreshed is exactly what I just did. 
It's the idea of, 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 of relief. Yesterday I was delivering mail. Not a good day. I would rather have six foot of snow. My word, I'll tell you what. My little Jeep, it's got that black hard top on it. And it's a red Jeep. Two-door. It has air, but it's worthless. You got the windows down. You deliver mail, right? By the end of the day, I was a rag. I mean, it was just so hot, and it was, I was just dripping. Like when I got home and I, my wife saw my back, she went, oh, my. I, or words to that effect. But there was one thing in the course of the day that was absolutely marvelous. There's another mail carrier. In fact, he's on the route that I was doing yesterday. He left for me in his mailbox two bottles of water that had been frozen and a wet towel that was wrapped around those two bottles. I pulled that out of that box and I pulled that little wet towel out of there and I took it and I went, oh, it was painful. But it was delicious. That's this word refresh. It's the idea that 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 the pain or the the exertion or whatever it happens to be is being relieved. This is the kind of refreshment that Philemon was in the lives of those people of that congregation of that church. Philemon, you've got the testimony of of refreshing these people. Where they leave the they they leave your presence better than they were when they came into it is the idea. That's the picture. That's who this Philemon is. That's that's what Paul's testimony is of him, and of his testimony. But then he goes into the fact that in verses eight through sixteen, there's this intercessory uh, or the dependability of his intercessorship. So look at verse number eight. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you. Uh, what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also the prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel." But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for, for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now I want you to understand something here. Onesimus is a slave. He is a slave. He is an individual that belongs to another. Now, I want you also to understand that during this period in history in the Roman Empire, there were approximately 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. Slaves went for about 500 denarii. 500 denarii. I know that sounds like a lot of money. And it is. When you think that one denarii is approximate to one day's worth of labor. So 500 days to pay for one slave. And this is a slave that is unskilled, 
uneducated, just simply a workhorse kind of a thing. If they happen to be educated and they happen to be skilled labor, they could go as for, for as high as 50,000 denarii. Now, I did some, some, uh, some mathematician-type stuff. Wish Kathy was up here so she could tell us all about the math that's involved here. The idea that, that for 500 denarii, that's just under a year and a half of working. And that's assuming that you take the one denarii and totally set it aside. But you can't. You've got to live on that. If you want a $50,000, excuse me, 50,000 denarii slave, you're going to have to work for 140 years, 140 years to pay for that particular slave. Onesimus, a slave. I don't know whether he's skilled labor or not, but the fact is he has run away, which is a punishable offense. Now, that punishment can be anything up to and including death. Up to and including death. In this particular case, I doubt very much that death was going to be an option. In fact, death was one of those options that was not utilized very often because of the fact that these slaves were so valuable. If you kill them, you're out that money. So here we have the appeal. We have the intercession being made on the part of Paul to to Philemon. Philemon, and you notice, and you read it for yourself, you're going to pick up on the fact that Paul is making an argument here. I could demand this. I could claim this. But rather than do that, I'm going to put it in your hands for you to deal with. I don't want you to feel compulsory, forced, or arm-twisted. But he would be profitable to me in my ministry here in chains. But more so to you. And furthermore, Philemon, he's now our brother in Christ. He's now our brother in Christ. You see, he's not only profitable to me, but he's also profitable to you. Now also, I want to point out this out. As far as his slavery ship is concerned, as far as Onesimus being a slave is concerned, his legal status does not change. Just because he got saved. His legal status, he's still a slave. So we got the argument being made, the intercession being made, and then we also have the, uh, um, the partner relationship being explained. Starting in verse 17, he says this, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will, be, will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. And he goes on with some more folks. The fact is that Paul is a dependable partner. By Lehman, you are a dependable partner. There's an interesting thing happening here in verses 17 and 18. And it's one that we oftentimes pass over. And the fact is, in verses 17 and 18, Paul is making the argument for the fact that there's a substitute. 
Notice again. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. In other words, I'll be responsible. I take the burden. If he has been any cost to you in any way, shape, or form, I'll pay it. I'll take care of it. Philemon has no argument. I mean, every argument that could be made against Onesimus has been taken away. He's now a brother in Christ. Any financial burden that he may have been, Paul has volunteered to take care of. Paul has made a personal appeal. And who can refuse the Apostle Paul? Especially if he's your spiritual daddy. We have no idea what transpires after this. None. Someday when we get to glory, we'll find out how this story progressed. But the fact is, we have here a picture. We have the picture of, of the substitution of Christ for me. We have the, the picture of the intercessory ministry of Paul, but also of Christ. We also have another picture here that, that time is, is really just not going to allow me to develop as much as I would like to. You get toward the end of this particular narrative, you find there Paul asking Philemon to prepare a room for him. Did you catch that? This is not a threat, by the way. You know, it's not one of those things of, prepare a room for me and you better be doing what I've been talking about here because I'm coming. Well, now think about that for just a minute. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also, right? Boy, my mind just immediately started thinking about John chapter 14. And the fact that there's coming a day in which Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to claim the bride. He's coming to take me home. Man, I can't wait for that day. He's going to take me home. He's going to take me to a place where I don't have to worry about any more illness. I don't have to worry about any more heat or cold, if you happen to be that particular mindset. I don't have to worry about any kind of illness. I don't have to worry about death. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about paying off the mortgage. You know, I'm a firm believer that we ought to leave the mortgage for the Antichrist. Just think about that one. But the fact is, as a man of God, as a child of God today, the next thing on God's prophetical calendar is the rapture of the church. There's nothing yet to be fulfilled. He's coming back. So I read this account here of Philemon and Onesimus. I, I, I read of what's transpired here. I read Paul's arguments as far as why Philemon should accept him back, why he should uh, forgive the, the, the offense of running away, that he's now a brother in Christ. You know, there are so many things here, so many lessons to be learned here about extending grace to others. But the bottom line is this. Could others write the same thing about you? Or me? Are we a people of faith that is measurable, demonstrable? Is it 
the kind of thing that when people, I, I was thinking of Kathy, uh, she was sharing the story during Sunday school this morning about, uh, I think it was a Muslim child who came and asked her to pray. And, and Kathy explained that the fact that, uh, um, that she prays to a different God than, than her family does. And that's why she came to ask her to pray. Do people do that with us? Do they do that with you? Because they know that you serve the living God. That you, they know that you serve Jesus Christ. Which raises one last question, and that is this. As I think about the service that, uh, that Paul has rendered, that Philemon has rendered, and that now Onesimus is rendering. Do we serve Christ out of a sense of fear? Do we serve Christ out of a sense of, well, if I don't do it, nobody else will? Or do we serve Christ out of a spirit of, God, I love you, and I want to do whatever you want, even if it's outside of my comfort zone? Believe me, when, when you surrender your life to Christ and he asks you to serve, you will be in an uncomfortable position. I guarantee it. If not for one reason, then for the other. If not for the fact that you're unfamiliar with it, or perhaps because there are those who are going to persecute you because of it. Any number of reasons. But why do we serve? Why do we serve? I was once on the run, just like Onesimus. So were you. There came that place and time where we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the war was over. It would be a long, long war that started in 1775. By the way, if you thought it started in 1776, you've got some learning to do. It would be a long war until that day in which the British surrendered. And then it would be a number of years yet before a treaty would be signed. And then years again until a constitution would be adopted. It's a long and drawn process. But freedom was won. Now I thought about that, and what does that mean? Here's a new nation. Now they have to set up a government, they have to set up a treasury, they have to set up all the forms that would be a part of government to make it run smoothly. Trial and error. Is that really freedom? Yes, they were free from the anarchy of the British Empire. Well, we could talk about 1812 later. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, the war was over in every respect. My soul has been redeemed. My citizenship is now in heaven. Nobody can take that away. So yes, there is most certainly a great deal of freedom from the burden of sin. And I serve Jesus out of joy, out of desire, out of devotion, out of love.
And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I know that Paul knew that. Onesimus was learning that. And the testimony we have here of Philemon, he understood it as well. So I suspect that Paul's argument was one that was well-received and well-understood. Oh, that we would learn the same lessons and walk away from this particular book with the same understanding. We serve a living God and that we are free in Christ. I'm not sure I've said this before, but I want you to understand You know, all of those folk who come and they say, well, you know, you become a Christian, then you got to do all those, you got to obey all those rules and regulations. And then they find out you're Baptist. Oh, man, you really got rules and regulations, don't you? Believe me, I've heard them. I've heard people say it. When I was a youth pastor, I heard it from the teens. When I became a senior pastor, I'm hearing it from the adults. Oh, man, all those rules. You know, as I have grown in my relationship with Christ, as I've been walking with Him, and I've been learning about all the things that He desires for me to do, right? All the things that He asks me to do. I have discovered I don't have time for all the don'ts. Literally, I don't have time for all the don'ts if I'm doing the do's. So one of the lessons that we walk away from Philemon with, let's be a people of the do. Let's be a people of the way. Let us be the lighthouse and the darkness and the salt of the earth and make a difference for eternity. So much to do and so little time to do it. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and thank you for the kind attention of your people. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we are indeed an independent people, a people of freedom. But we're also a people that are totally and absolutely dependent upon you for our salvation, for the enablement to accomplish the things you've asked us to do. God, as we've already prayed today, We pray that you would find us faithful in doing the things that you've called us to do. And Father, we would not be ungrateful. And thank you for the nation in which we've had the privilege to grow up in. And the sacrifices that have been made to ensure those freedoms. For which we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.